Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's a rainy afternoon in December. It's not snowing. That's the good news. Uh, thank you all for coming uh, this afternoon uh, after the uh, the lunch hour to come hear us talk about a, what I think is a really very interesting and important topic. And uh, thank you for coming out in the rain. Thanks uh, to also my colleagues, Jim Carafano, Mike Gonzalez, and Jack Spencer, uh, who will uh, be talking uh, about uh, uh, this issue. So I'm playing a double role. I'm, I'm actually hosting it, uh, the event here, but I'm actually going to kick off uh, the uh, discussion with a uh, sharing some of my, my thoughts about the, the issue of nationalism. Uh, you have probably heard uh, that there are a number of conservatives who are now talking about the importance of nationalism as part of uh, America's identity. Uh, President uh, Trump had once made a remark about he was a nationalist, uh, and other uh, conservatives have written some books on it. There was a conference uh, a few weeks back uh, about nationalism where many conservative thinkers came together and talked about uh, the importance of redefining or understanding the American conservative tradition in terms of the history of nationalism. So before I get started, uh, I thought, though, that I would uh, remind everybody that uh, Mrs. James has uh, asked us to put together a document called True North, the Principles of Conservatism. I think that uh, they may be available outside. If on the way out you want to uh, pick them up. Uh, but the staff at the Heritage Foundation spend a great deal of time reviewing uh, the principles uh, that uh, Heritage has adhered to for many years. We thought that in the wake of other, not only the debate about nationalism, but the debate about uh, the future of conservatism, that it would be a good idea that we put this in writing. And so uh, I, as, as I talk about nationalism, uh, I actually had this uh, document about True North principles in front of me the whole time to make sure that I was staying True North. So, let's get started. Uh, at first glance, the uh, new nationalism of conservatives will seem benign and actually even uncontroversial. In his book, uh, The Case for Nationalism, uh, Rich Lowry defines nationalism as flowing from a people's, and I quote, natural devotion to their home and to their country. Yoram Hazoni, in his book, the virtue of nationalism also has a rather anodyne definition of nationalism. It means, and I quote him, that the world is governed best when nations agree to cultivate their own traditions, 
free from interference by other nations, end of quote. Now, there is nothing particularly controversial at all about these statements. Uh, defined in these terms, it sounds a little more, it sounds like a little more uh, than simply defending nationality or national sovereignty, which is why Lowry, Hazoni, and others insist their definition of nationalism has nothing to do with the most virulent forms involving ethnicity, race, militarism, or fascism. But here's the problem. I suppose any of us can take any tradition that has a definite history and simply redefine it to our liking. We could then give ourselves permission to castigate anyone who doesn't agree with us as, quote, misunderstanding or even libeling us. But who actually is responsible for the misunderstanding here? The people who are trying to redefine the term or the people who remind us of nationalism's real history and what nationalism actually has been in history? Which raises an even bigger question. Why go down this road at all? If you have to spend half of your time explaining, oh, I don't mean that kind of nationalism, why would you want to associate a venerable tradition of American civic patriotism, national pride, and American exceptionalism at all with the various nationalisms that have occurred in the world? After all, American conservatives have argued that one of the great things about America was that it was different than all other countries, different from all other nationalisms. Here's my point. Nationalism is not the same thing as national identity. It's not the same thing as respect for national sovereignty. It's not even the same thing as national pride or even America first. It's something historically and philosophically different. And those differences are not merely semantic, technical, or the preoccupations of academic historians. In fact, they go to the very essence of what it means to be an American. Now, I think I understand why some people will be attracted to the concept of nationalism. As I mentioned earlier on, President Trump used the term nationalism. National conservatives think uh, that uh, President uh, Trump has tapped into a new populism for conservatism, and they want to take advantage of it. They think that traditional fusionist conservatism and the American exceptional idea are not strong enough. They're not muscular enough. They want something stronger to stand up to the universal claims of globalism and progressivism that they believe are anti-American. And they also want something stronger to push back on open borders and limit, limitless immigration. I understand that. I understand very well the desire to have a muscular reaction to the overreach of international governance and globalism. And I have no trouble at all in arguing that an international system based on nation states and national sovereignty is vastly superior, especially for the United States, especially for the United States, to one that is run by a global governing body democratically remote from the people. So what's the problem then? Why can't we just all agree that nationalism defined in this way is what we American conservatives have been and believed all along? 
that is just a new, more fashionable bottle for a very old wine? Well, because the new bottle changes the way that the wine will be viewed. Why do we need a new bottle at all? It would be like putting a perfectly good California Cabernet in a bottle labeled from Germany or France or Russia or China. The problem lies in that little, little suffix ism at the end of the word nationalism. It indicates that the word nationalism means a general practice, system, philosophy, or ideology that is true for all. There is a tradition of nationalism out there that we Americans are part of. All countries have nationalisms. All nations and all peoples are all distinguished by what makes them different. Their common heritage as nationalists is actually their differences. Their different languages, their different ethnicities, their different cultures. At the same time, all nations supposedly share the same sovereignty and rights of the nation state, regardless of their form of government. A sovereign democratic nation state is in this respect no different than a sovereign authoritarian nation state. Regardless of the different kinds of government, it's the commonality of the nation state that matters. Therefore, the sovereignty of Iran or North Korea is by this way of thinking morally and legally no different than the sovereignty of the United States or any other democratic nation. I firmly believe that not all nation states are the same. There have been times in history when nations have been associated with racism, ethnic supremacy, militarism, communism, and fascism. Does that mean that all nation states are that way? Of course not. But there is a huge difference between the historical phenomena of nationalism and respect for the sovereignty of the democratic nation state. Nationalism celebrates cultural and even ethnic differences of a people regardless of the form of government. The democratic nation state, on the other hand, grounds its legitimacy and its sovereignty and democratic governance. The biggest problem causing this misunderstanding is not recognizing the actual history of nationalism. It is, as I mentioned before, to confuse national identity, national consciousness, and national sovereignty with nationalism with a capital N. Now, nationalism, as we historically know it, arose not in America, but in Europe. Our independence movement was a revolt of the people over the type of government that we had under the British. The founders at first thought of themselves as Englishmen who were being denied their rights by Parliament and by the Crown. Yes, Americans certainly had an identity, but it was not based on ethnicity, language, or even religion alone. It had already developed a very distinct understanding of self-government. And that was the key to the revolution. By this time, Americans already had a very or fairly strong sense of identity. But that identity at that time was not nationalism. Now, why is that? Because nationalism had not been invented yet. It didn't exist at the time of the American Revolution. Modern nationalism began in France in the French Revolution. The revolution was a call to arms of the French people. The French nation was born in the French Revolution. 
The terror and the Napoleonic imperialism were the highest expression of this newborn French nationalism. Napoleon's nationalistic imperialism in turn sparked the rise of counter-reactionary nationalism in Germany and all over Europe. Germans, Russians, Austrians, and other nations discovered their own national consciousness and their own cultures, the importance of their own cultures in their hatred of the French invaders. After that, nationalism raged across the 19th and 20th centuries as a celebration of nations based on a common national culture and a common language and a common historical experience. Nationalism was, in this sense, particularistic. It was populistic. It was exclusive. It was zero-sum. It celebrated differences, not the common humanity of Christianity as it had been known in the Holy Roman Empire or the Catholic Church or even in the Enlightenment. The key to nationalism was the nation-state. Technically, it wasn't the people themselves who were free or sovereign as the people, but, their but the people represented by and in the name of the nation-state. In other words, their governments. Sovereignty ultimately resided in the state, not the people. The state was above the people, not of, by, and for the people in the American experience. And to this day, this idea lives in the British monarchy, for example, where the queen is the ultimate sovereign, not the people or the parliament. It is unfortunately a common historical error to equate nationalism with the historical rise of the nation state in Europe and the international state system that arose after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. The Westphalian peace did recognize the sovereignty of princes over and against the universal claims of the Holy Roman Empire and the Church. And it's true that the Protestant Reformation did solidify the sovereignty of the princes and the principalities as forerunners to the nation-state. But these were princes. They were monarchies. They were dynasties. It wasn't until much later that the modern nation-state, and especially the populist sentiments of nationalism, arose in history. Whatever this state system was, it is not nationalism. Nationalism as a historical phenomenon did not emerge for another 150 years after 1648. Claiming otherwise, folks, is just bad history, pure and simple. Which brings me to the idea of American exceptionalism, which should be, I believe, the answer to the question of America's national identity and what it should be. It's a beautiful concept that captures both the reality and the ambiguity of the American experience. It's based on a universal creed. It is grounded in America's founding principles, natural law, liberty, limited government, individual rights, the checks and balances of government, popular sovereignty, not the sovereignty of the folkish nation-state, nation the civilizing role of religion in civil society, and not an established religion associated with one class or with one creed, and the crucial role of civil society and civil institutions in grounding and mediating our democracy and our freedom. That's the American exceptional idea. We as Americans believe these principles are right and true for all peoples and not just for us. That was the way that Washington and Jefferson understood them, and it was certainly the way that Lincoln understood them. 
That's what makes them universal. In other words, the American creed grounds us in universal principles. But what you may ask makes us so exceptional then. If it's universal, what makes us exceptional? It is, in fact, the creed. We believe that Americans are different because our creed is both universal and exceptional at the same time. We are exceptional in the unique way we apply our universal principles. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we are better than other peoples, though I think probably most Americans do believe that they are. It's not really about bragging rights. Rather, it's a statement of historical fact that there is something truly different and unique about the United States that talking about us in terms of nationalism loses. And nationalists cannot say this because there is nothing universal about nationalism except that all nationalisms are well different and particularistic. Nationalism is devoid of a common idea or principle of government except that a people or a nation state can be almost anything. It can be fascist, it could be authoritarian, it could be totalitarian, or it can be democratic. Now some of the new nationalists doubt explicitly the importance of the American creed. They argue that the creed is not as important as we thought it was to our national identity. Well, let's just think about that a minute. What does it mean to say that the creed really isn't all that important? If the creed doesn't matter at all, then what is it that's so special about America? Is it our language? Well, no, the Brits got that. Is it our ethnicity? Well, that doesn't work either because there's no such thing as a common American ethnicity. Is it a specific religion? No, we have freedom religion and no specific religion. Is it our beautiful rivers and mountains? No, well, we've got some beautiful rivers and mountains, but so do other countries. Is it our culture? Yes, I suppose so. But how do you understand American culture without the American creed and the founding principles? Lincoln called America the world's last, uh, last best hope because it was a place where all people can and should be free. And before Lincoln, Jefferson called it an empire of liberty. Immigrants came here and became true Americans by living the American creed and the American dream. You can become a French, a French citizen, but for most Frenchmen, if you are foreign, that is not the same thing as being French. It's different here. You can become a real American by adopting our creed and our way of life. After World War II, the American way and our devotion to democracy became a freedom for the whole world. That was the foundation of our claim to world leadership in the Cold War. And it is no different today. If we become a nation, just like any other nation, then frankly, I would not expect any other nation to grant us any special trust or support. Another benefit of American exceptionalism is that it is self-correcting. When we fail to live up to our ideals, as we did before the Civil War with slavery, we can appeal, as Lincoln did, to our better nature to correct our flaws. That is where the central importance of the creed comes in. Applying the principles of the Declaration of Independence correctly has allowed us to redeem ourselves and our history when we have gone astray.
There is no American identity without the American creed. However, the nationalists are correct about one thing. In suggesting that the American identity is more than just about a set of ideas. These ideas are lived in our culture. That is true. It is also true, as Lincoln said about his famous mystic chords of memory, that our common experience and our common history form a unique story. It is a story that embodies the very real lives and relationships of people in a shared cultural experience, in a shared space and time in history that we call the United States. The sharing of experience in space and time in and of itself is not unlike what any other nation experiences. At the most basic level, yes, I would say that all nations are in that respect alike. But what made it different for Lincoln was he believed and he hoped that the better angels of our nature, as he called them, grounded, grounded as it was in the American creed, would touch the mystic chords of memory that make up that story. And it was that touch that set us apart from other nations. So let me end by making two points. One, the degree to which national conservatism sounds plausible rests on a profound historical misunderstanding. Statements in and of themselves that sound true and even attractive have to be suspended in a state of historical amnesia to make sense. When Hazoni says, quote, national cohesion is the secret ingredient that allows free institutions to exist, end quote, it makes an almost obvious banal point, at least for the countries that are already free. The problem begins when he associates this with the general tradition of the virtues of nationalism as a concept. Then it gets really messy. Is national cohesion the secret ingredient to free institutions to nationalists in Russia, in China, or in Iran? Hardly. In fact, nationalism in these countries is the bitter enemy of free institutions. If the answer is, well, I don't mean that kind of nationalism, then the question gets really begged. Why make broad general statements about nationalism at all if the exceptions loom so large? If, in fact, the exceptions end up being the rule? My second point is this. If this were just an academic debate over the idea of nationalism, then I suppose it really wouldn't be all that important. You can let the intellectuals split their hairs and historians make their points about the history of nationalism. And you could go on and see whether or not the concept of nationalism really helps us politically, whether it's true or not. But I fear the problem is bigger than that for conservatives. The conservative movement today faces huge threats to our most basic principles. From the left, we face progressives who have always said that our creed and our claims to American exceptionalism were a fraud. They have always argued that we were a nation like any other. In fact, the more radical of them argue that we are actually worse than other nations precisely because our founding principles were supposedly based on lies. But now we face a new challenge on the sanctity of the American creed 
from a different direction. This time, from the right. It comes first from blurring the distinctions between nationalism as actually practiced and the uniqueness of American exceptionalism. Then it goes on to raise the specter of the nation state as being a, if not the, central idea to American conservatism. No different than what a continental European conservative probably would say about their traditions. Frankly, I don't get this at all. American conservatives are skeptical of the government. They're skeptical of the nation state. That's what makes us conservatives. So why elevate the concept of the nation state to a role that is so foreign to the American conservative tradition? I fear the answer may have to do with a deeper philosophical transformation that is going on inside some conservative political circles. It is now becoming fashionable for some conservatives to criticize capitalism and the free market. Some are even arguing that there are now no limiting principles to what the state and the government can or should do in the name of their political agenda. This used to be called big government conservatism. It was seen then as a liberal proposition and it still is, in my view, that. It shares a troubling principle with modern progressivism. Deep down, having the government rather than the people making important decisions about their lives is, in principle, no different than a progressive arguing for the need for government to end poverty and eliminate inequality. Apparently, the idea is that with conservatives in charge of government, this time it will be different. This time, we will make sure that the government that we control will drive investments in the right direction, and we will make the right decisions on what the trade-offs are. Now, does this sound familiar? Don't defenders of big government always argue that this time it will be different? Now, put aside for a moment whether we conservatives would ever control such a government to sufficiently do the things that we want it to do. Do we want to empower a government even more in industrial and other kinds of economic and social policy that will surely use that very increased power to destroy the things that we love and believe about this country? The best way, in my opinion, to protect America's greatness, its special claims, its identity, if you will, is to believe in what made us great in the first place. It wasn't our language. It wasn't our race, it wasn't our ethnicity, and it wasn't our industrial policy, it wasn't the power of government to decide what trade-offs are, it wasn't in a government that decides what kind of work is dignified or what kind of work is not, and it certainly wasn't a belief in the nation-state or the greatness of nationalism. It was our creed and the belief system that was personified and lived in a culture our institutions of civil society, and our democratic way of government that made America the greatest nation in the history of all nations and all nationalisms. In a word, it was our belief in ourselves as a good and free people. That's what made America exceptional. That's what made us good. Thank you for your listening. Thank you for your attention. And now we will get comments from... All three of them. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, thank you, uh, Kim, and thanks all of you who braved the rain uh, to come here. Um, I'm going to touch on some of the same themes that uh, Kim touched on. It shouldn't surprise anybody. I've worked alongside Kim for the last 11 years. Um, look, uh, one of the best enunciations of the, the theme of, uh, of, of, of the creed that we have is 1921, having embarked on his first trip to the United States, G.K. Chesterton, an English writer, wrote that America, quote, America is the only nation in the world that is found on a creed. Uh, he, he said, you know, other nations don't have a need for a unifying doctrine because, as he put it, England is English, France is French, and Ireland is Irish. And he, nobody questioned that. He, he go, goes on to, to riff that, you know, an, an Englishman never questions the fact that he's, he's English. Uh, and what, while many have rightly remarked on the importance of this uh, statement, uh, you know, it's quoted all the time, nobody really talks about the timing of it. Uh, but actually, 1921, when he wrote this, it's an important year for Chesterton to make this observation. Just three years earlier, at the end of World War I, uh, three large cosmopolitan empires that had, uh, you know, had a large uh, landmass in Europe, I'm talking about the Ottoman Empire, the Habsburg Empire, and the Russian Empire, break up. Uh, and, and, and out of this out of this collapse emerge all these... Uh, a lot of these, a lot of nation states, they were more, more or less expected to be territorial expressions of the leading ethnic group. Uh, they were, they were not all, you know, one ethnic states, but they, but they, they, they each had one ethnic group. For example, so Latvia was supposed to be the nation of the Latvians, Poland the, the nation of the Poles. In 1921, also, we see finally the end of a, of a very grueling three-year uh, war of Irish independence. And for the first time in centuries, you have the emergence of the Irish Free State. So lots of things are happening in Europe, and, and they're all understood to be ethnic-based. And America was different, as Chesterton wrote. Uh, it wasn't just that America was already very ethnically diverse at, at its founding, not culturally diverse, but ethnically diverse. Uh, it, was, it was really it was the provenance of the authority of government that mattered, not where the people came from. Uh, America was, from the start, the only nation that drew its authority from natural right, as Kim said. It remains so to this day, arguably. Uh, it, it, it derives its legitimacy from the idea that people are born with rights. Not many. Not, it's not a whole panoply of rights, but, but very fundamental uh, rights. These rights are negative in the sense that you possess them until somebody comes along and takes them away, a king or a dictator or a mob. Or it could be an electoral mob as well. Uh, these are the rights of free expression, uh, the freedom of conscience, the right to life, uh, the right to property, the right of assembly. Uh, not many more than that. And as Kim said, the universal, the humans, as a result of being human, have these rights. What, uh, what is unique is that we are based on that. And the, and the founders discussed this at, at infinitum. Uh, and they were very proud of the fact that they were unique in this. As I think Hamilton puts it best when he wrote, uh, it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country to decide whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, and whether they're for, or whether they're forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. So America was created not by accident or force, but by reflection and choice. And immigrants who came in in the in the tens of millions uh, uh, in the in the in the intervening 240 years, uh, between 1850 and today, we have 100 million immigrants. And they're, they're expected to develop an emotional attachment to these principles and actually to the, to the parchments in which they're codified. Uh, and this, this too is uniquely American. We have an echo of this 
in the Mayflower Compact that the pilgrims assigned with the non-dissenters who were on the ship, who were called the strangers, and they, they agreed to a civil body politic. So this habit of writing uh, principles into documents and then abiding by them uh, stood in, in, in stark contrast, for example, to England, which does not have a written constitution, and definitely to the, the, the ethnic birth of nationalism in Europe. Um, but again, as uh, Kim said, it, it, wasn't, it couldn't be just a creed, something, uh, you know, it couldn't just be based on mere practicality. Man, man is not made that way. A deeper loyalty was commanded, and Madison wrote that the, com the, the documents re required something more instinctive and primitive. They deserved veneration. Uh, so there, there, there's a need for a culture to emerge that instill, instills the, this veneration in, in, in the creed. Um, and, and it's precisely because of the exceptional nature of this, uh, of this culture and this creed that, uh, something I write about often, uh, the attacks on America's culture and creed over the last 30 or 40 years is such a threat, uh, to our ability to, to, to sustain Republican government. We can go later on, if you want, in the Q&A on the nature of this attack, whether it's happenstance and benign or whether it's, uh, it's part of a pur purposeful plan by ideologues to replace the tradition of small government that we have with the continental notion that puts man at the behest of a centralized uh, uh, large state. I'll just close out by saying uh, one of the problems with nationalism is it can, it can contribute to that large state, as my colleagues uh, Jim Carafano and Jack Spencer will explain. But we don't want to be misunderstood. You know, I, I believe that, that the nation state, although it shouldn't be, as Kim said, it shouldn't be worship per se, but it is a rational way to safeguard our individual rights better than the Klan or the empire. But that is our understanding, though. The, the, the government serves the people and not the other way around. Thanks. Jack. Thank you, Mike and Kim. Uh, I'm Jack Spencer. I'm the vice president of our Institute for Economic Freedom. Um, my remarks are going to focus a little bit more on, uh, on sort of what all this means for governing today. Um, you'll see a lot of the same themes that, that we've talked about already. Let me start by saying that, look, I understand why some folks are attracted to elements of nationalism. For some, it's an expression of love of country. It's a way for us to say we love the United States and we want to put her first in policy. It presents a policy framework intended to protect what we hold dear as American from the threats we see emerging all around us. And for others, nationalism is an expression of skepticism of the status quo that without question deserves skepticism. For all of this, I'm sympathetic. My critique today is not of the nationalist desire to protect America's unique heritage, but rather, it's, rather of its calls to manage economic and social outcomes by consolidating power in Washington. Really what we're talking about here is whether the liberal order around which American society is built has lost its value. Some on the right, like scholar Patrick Deneen, argue that liberalism is unsustainable in every aspect because it relies on an endless quest for human satisfaction derived from pervasive consumption. Nationalism would moderate this condition with a form of resource rationing. Essentially, it relies on government to determine at some level where we invest, with whom we trade, what we purchase, and the value of our labor. Instead, I will argue that retaining and expanding a governing philosophy centered on individual freedom, decentralized power, and moral responsibility is the best way to achieve a stronger America and a stronger nation. National, nationalism essentially elevates the primacy of the nation over the individual as the central organizing principle of governance. Under such a system, authority migrates from the individual to the government. Once this Rubicon is crossed, 
we've essentially changed the nature of our country. At that point, we've empowered bureaucrats and politicians to decide what's in the national interest and to manage every speck of American society towards those ends. But politicians don't always have our best interests in mind, and those that may eventually lose power or become corrupt over time. And further, the cumulative cost of supplanting economics with politics will eventually leave us all worse off and poorer. Now, to be clear, the debate here is not about a free economy versus a regulated one. We subsidize, tax, and regulate all kinds of things. This is about something much deeper, how we organize our economy and our society. So long as we have special interests lobbying Washington, there's always going to be carve-outs. But as long as we have an economy that's predominantly governed by markets, such, such interventions may cost us wealth and opportunity, but over the long run, we'll be okay. But okay at the macro level sure doesn't mean okay at the individual level for everyone all the time. In fact, in, in fact, despite the immense wealth being generated by the U.S. economy, things are not okay for a lot of folks. And it's these pockets of struggle that inspire much of the nationalist narrative. In general, nationalism would blame this condition on markets being too free. The result, they argue, is the elite get richer and the middle class gets left behind. This leads to economic struggle and a general breakdown of society and thus a weakening of the nation. Nationalists don't necessarily reject the market per se, but they've argued that restricting economic freedom or using government to manage economic activity leads to better societal outcomes. Now, there are a number of problems here. First, nationalism often asserts that our economy is much freer than it actually is. Yes, the philosophical underpinnings of our economy are definitely rooted in capitalism. However, as I mentioned, the economy today is heavily regulated. Thus, to assign society's ills, economic or otherwise, to, the free, to free market capitalism simply ignores the actual characteristics of our economy. Indeed, the opposite's more likely true. Government interventions serve special interests. They breed cronyism, inefficiency, and corruption. This is the fountainhead of the problems that animate the nationalist critique, not too much freedom. Second, it often associates unwanted societal outcomes with a failure of the free market. A free market doesn't give everything to everyone, and it doesn't solve every problem. A free market's a system of exchange that allows people to put their limited resources to their best and highest use. It will generate the maximum amount of wealth for society while also reflecting our cultural values and individual preferences. If we have, a cult if we have cultural and societal problems, don't blame the free market. Blame us. Thirdly, it gives too much credit to politicians. The economy is simply too complex for any person or group of people to manage. It misunderstands individualism. Individualism is not a rejection of community. It's a recognition that government shall not determine for the group how we each pursue our own happiness. Instead, such pursuits are left up to the individual. That doesn't mean that we pursue things alone. It means that government doesn't do it for us. Instead of relying on government, we rely on churches, civic organizations, and family. And lastly, lastly, nationalism is its own form of elitism. Free markets and capitalism are the great democratizers. It's not the rich that benefit most from the free market. It's poor and middle class. Rich people have always lived in nice, nice houses. They didn't lose their fingers in factory cogs. They don't have to do dishes or mow their own grass. These were luxuries unobtainable by the middle class a generation ago. But thanks to free markets, all of this is within reach of every American because on the whole, prosperity is spreading across the nation. Consider these simple statistics. The share of households earning less than $35,000 fell from 36% in 1967 to 28% in 2018. 
The share of households earning more than $100,000 tripled from less than 10% in 1967 to more than 30% in 2018. Society is getting richer. We have more time to spend with our kids to recreate, to pursue our happiness. But an economy governed by nationalism restricts individual choice and builds an entire economy around the ideals held by concentrations of power rather than by all. We've already lost untold amounts of wealth, innovation, entrepreneurial ideas due to government intervention. And as we deviate further from the market, prosperity loss becomes wider and deeper. Liberalism has always had its critics. I understand Anin's critique that liberalism has normalized certain unsavory elements in society. I'm the father of a 10-year-old girl. I'm very, very aware. But liberalism has also brought about immense prosperity and opportunity in society. And, then, and in this process has eradicated any number of evils, many of which themselves are the product of the state. Liberalism protects us from this intrusive state. This is why the left rejects liberalism. Marx understood that the individual was the direct threat to the state and its interests as defined by those who derive power from its strength. When people are free, regardless of gender or, ident or identity, to pursue their preferences and maximize their talents, the nation gets wealthier. Nationalism should be rejected because, purposefully or not, such a philosophy in the name of strengthening, strengthening the nation transfers power from the individual to the state, and this weakens us all. Not because the nation's not important or worthy of strength, but because in America, the strength of our nation's not derived by the strength of the state, but rather the strength of our people. Thank you. Seconds applause. Boy, that bar is raised high. Um, Jim Carafano, I oversee foreign and security policy. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, everybody up. I can't, no, Kim gave, I thought, a very magisterial important view about why we care. You know, why this issue is important. And it's not an esoteric discussion of a term, but the fundamental deeper meaning of why we, not just conservatives, but we about the serious policy community, really ought to treat this issue with the seriousness it deserves. I thought Mike added great depth and kind of understanding about how we got here from there. And Jack, I thought, did a tremendous job kind of laying about, about what the real, the real root of the, the great deer and stranger of the problem is today. Um, so these guys get the easy part and they're like, what the hell do we do about it? So I'm stuck with that, you know? So actually the work, um, that's okay. So I have, I, no, no, they're good people. So I have, I have, I have two, I have two recommendations and, and it's a, it may, making work for all you people. And one's called parsing and the other calls spade work is, and, and the reason for that is, is this is not, um, this is not about arguing about bumper stickers and this cannot be solved by discussing bumper stickers. Whether it's liberalism, when Jack says liberalism, he's talking about Adam Smith. When Elizabeth Warren's talking about liberalism, she's talking about way far from Adam Smith. Uh, so, um, and, and, uh, and, and a really good illustrative example is America First. America First was a fine bumper sticker. I actually went, right after the Trump used it for the first time in a campaign speech, I went to the guys in the corner, I said, hey guys, I said, you know where this comes from, right? Limburg isolationism. And the response was really interesting, they said, one, this is 99% of the people that, that vote for us, they have no idea where it comes from. And they say, the other thing is, it's not what we mean. Which is maybe a fine argument for a campaign slogan, but it's a completely inadequate basis for governance. Um, so as much as America First helped get the administration elected, it spent as much time explaining to American people in the world how what they mean by America first is not isolationism, that America may be fighting for self-interest, but it doesn't mean America is selfish, that we engage with friends and allies. Um, the, the bumper sticker can't solve the fundamental underlying 
policy debate, which has to be had and has to be taken more seriously than that. Because when people say nationalism, I think um, uh, Kim covered the waterfront well. I mean, some people, it's just about, well, how do we engage conservative voters or how do we energize the populist base? But other people, when they use that term, they have a much darker, insidious, and evil meaning for that. And, and you, can't, you cannot solve that debate by replacing that bumper sticker with a different bumper sticker. For the, for the serious policy community that's interested about governance and keeping America free, safe, and prosperous, we simply have to do better than that. And so I've really divided this into two categories, the parsing and the spade work. So the, I think the parsing falls into two areas. One is we have to have the courage and seriousness and honesty to differentiate between tolerance and the polity. Tolerance is about our understanding of the right of free speech and the, the, the willingness that to have a person say any kind of wacky thing they really want to, as long as you know, nobody gets hurt or died. Um, fine. Tolerate that all you want. But that's very different from saying that person has a legitimate part in the national conversation, that that is a legitimate part of the polity, that that person deserves a seat at the table. If, if somebody wants to be a white nationalist or a racist or a fascist, sure, that's their business or communist. But that doesn't mean that they're a legitimate part of this national conversation. I, I, those are tough things that I, I think we have to do to make those distinctions. Um, the other kind of par parsing, I think, is between sovereignty and popular sovereignty. Uh, we believe in a state system because it's the best alternative to global anarchy. It's not God-given. It's not a natural right. It's just a practical system of governance, which has worked over years and actually serves America's interests fairly well. And so we would broadly respect the, in, the, the sovereignty of other states because they should broadly respect ours. And we would only impinge on theirs when they impinged on our vital interests. And we were not surprised when they do likewise. That is very different from the concept of popular sovereignty in which the United States should remain, I think, legitimately and importantly, a global champion, right? The difference between a nation where the people serve the state and a state that exists to serve the people. Those are, I think, two very uh, different conversations. And I think we have to be particular and, and, uh, and, and careful to differentiate those, those two different uh, discussions, sovereignty and popular sovereignty, tolerance and the polity. Um, this gets to the, the, the second category, I think, which I call spade work. Um, we have to do our homework, uh, both in the parsing and in the policy. You know, in the parsing, um, I don't think it's legitimate to sit down at a table with communists and racists and white supremacists and have a discussion about what the future of America should be. And the notion say, well, you know, having them at the table shows that you're respecting free speech. No, it doesn't. It means I'm giving legitimacy to their ideas. I think we have to have the courage to recognize there are people that rightfully should be kind of excluded from the national conversation about serious governance in the United States. I think that's fair. Now, having said that, I don't think it's fair if somebody is excluded because somebody says, well, he's a fascist or he's a racist or he's a white nationalist or he's a communist because that, that's just a tactic of exclusion, right? We see the Russians do this all the time. I mean, nobody's more fascist than Putin. And Putin's number one instrument is to run around and call everybody in Europe a fascist. So they're excluded from the conversation, right? Um, you can't make those kind of difficult judgment calls between whether somebody that organized a riot to purposefully get people killed in Charlotte should be part of your conversation 
from maybe a government in Western Europe that decides that they want to have a different judicial system or organize their elections differently. Um, that's something that's not covered in a bumper sticker, and that requires all of us to do a, a bit of our homework in seriousness. The, I, think, I think there also needs to be spade work in policy. Kim mentioned um, this terrific uh, paper that Heritage put out talking about what do we really believe in. Uh, I think there's, what, 14 items on there, kind of, and they're not, they're not policy prescriptions, but they're, they're statements of, that, that really go back to the purpose of what we try to achieve in the Constitution, which is how do we create a fair and equitable society that respects um, uh, natural rights and human liberties and create a system that fosters that, right? Um, I think there's, we've, the, the bumper sticker debate is never going to get to those issues, never get to those serious questions. And so I think it's, it's impingent upon us to take the conversation beyond the bumper stickers and actually get to the particular policies. Now, so I, I don't want to sit down and have a conversation with a white nationalist because I know already, I don't think they're part of that conversation because they don't believe in natural rights. They don't believe in individual freedom and freedoms. On the other hand, you like Obamacare? I don't know why. But um, I will, you know, we should sit down and have a conversation together about what is the best way to do this, right? And, and I think we have to be prepared for that conversation. And I think these kind of ideas really get us to that next level that enable us to do that. And I'll just cite one. So one of them in there is said that we shouldn't do anything that undermines the sovereignty of the American people um, or allows uh, international, multinational organizations to, to impinge upon that. Um, that's not about being a nationalist. That's being about preserving the freedoms of American people. And so, for example, um, China has a particular policy of taking Chinese nationals and in placing them in, uh, in, in various UN organizations uh, because their view is that those Chinese nationalists are, above all, subservient and report to and act on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. And their purpose in those organizations is not to assist in the governance or the operation of the organizations. It's to drive the policies that China wants to create the norms and outcomes that China demands. We should oppose that, not because we're nationalists, not because we're, you know, but because that is antithetical to American interests. That is a, that is a direct assault on our popular sovereignty to create international norms international institutions, which are designed at the behest of a foreign power, essentially to undermine our freedoms and liberties. Um, I, I think that's, I think if we're stuck in a debate about nationalism, then we have lost. If we're not into the weeds of discussing actual policies and how they operationalize the protections of human freedom, then, then we have a great problem. Um, just cite one example, I think what um, Secretary Pompeo has done with the commission, he's organized on inalienable human rights, defining what are actual human liberties, human rights, that, if, that fundamentally should not be abridged, and that should be foundational understanding of our policy, what we do and shouldn't do in the world. That's not just a reflection of our sovereignty. It's a reflection of the notion of popular sovereignty and the foundational idea of exceptionalism, why America was created. That's the kind of effort um, that's worthwhile. I mean, I think if, if I were critical of this administration, um, you know, we could have done a lot to get beyond America first, um, I think we've been slow in kind of filling out the community of, of, of policymakers and uh, representatives that deal in international organizations, um, that, that um, deal with the UN, that deal with public diplomacy and some of these other areas. 
because we've got to have we've got to get to, to a level beyond a, a bumper sticker deep. And I think there's more, much more that can be done. And I challenge you is I think that we have to be part of that conversation. And I think if 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 we're not in the business of parsing, uh, if we're not in the business of doing the state spade work to get to the real depth of issues, then then we have failed as advisors, thinkers, policymakers in the community. Because at the end of the day, it's about we own this. And what are we doing to advance the ideas that the role of government is a limited government that's there to facilitate our freedom and our prosperity and our security in equal measure? So thanks, and I'll turn it back to you, Kim. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jack. Okay. Any comments or questions from uh, the audience? I think we have... Uh, Two people with microphones right here. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, my name is James Baskin from Tradition Family Property. And my question is, uh, nationalism today, like it was 75 years ago, is present being presented as a solution to social disintegration, social problems, as you mentioned, the destruction of the empires in Europe after World War I. And I think the, as you know, the, the Sorab Amari david French debate touches upon that. How do you specifically resolve these deep problems, uh, family disintegration, social disintegration, the drug problem, massive immigration? Now, what, how would you address those deeper problems so as to avoid these potentially false solutions uh, to, to these problems? I can just say very quickly that uh, Jim Carafano spoke about the uh, difference in the, in the meaning of liberal, Adam Smith liberal or Elizabeth Warren liberal. If you look at the critics like Pat Deneen, they say that it's actually the same thing. Everything from Locke, uh, to, uh, you know, Hobbes, Locke, uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, Hillary Clinton, it's all the same thing. And they have all destroyed the mediating institutions. They have all destroyed the church, the family. I think that's actually a mistake. Uh, in in I'll let my colleagues address how to put the how to solve these problems, but I think this this idea that this liberalism is monolithic from Locke to Elizabeth Warren is all one thing, and they're all against the the, the mediating institutions, the church, and and the and, and the family. It's, it's a fundamental mistake that I think our critics are making. A couple of points. One is is that I think you're right that we conservatives. It's on us to figure out how to offer real answers and solutions to these problems. I think this whole debate about nationalism is a completely wrong way to think about it, but that doesn't mean that there aren't real problems that need to be addressed. And uh, I'm sure Jack will say a few words about that. But the answer has got to be whether it's this disintegration of the family, the opioid crisis, um, anyone who is being marginalized uh, by any way whatsoever, we have to be able to go in and, and, and make the case about why we want to do what we want to do with the government, either negatively or positively. And the temptation is that we on the right start adopting the sort of default position of progressives, where if something is really, really hard, and civil society can't do it, or the market economy can't do it, we're going to get ahead of it, and we're going to take control of a directed government, and we're going to direct the outcome. Because it's so hard, it's so complex, and we don't really know what else to do. Uh, 
That's the temptation that we're facing. And all this business about nationalism is just window dressing that, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, I spent some time going through the history of, of, of nationalism because I just wanted to remind everybody here that, that is not a historical tradition that we Americans want to be associated with. I spent almost all of my professional career, particularly talking to Europeans, bragging about how we weren't nationalists like they were. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden now i got to say, well, I guess we are after all. <laughs> uh, so that is uh, the particular take I have on it. But I do believe that we, we, must have, we must have an answer because the default position will be the nation state or the government to solve it for us. And I do know that the history of the more virulent forms of nationalism in Europe in the 20th century, uh, particularly in Germany, arose as a result of the disintegration of the society and the collapse of democracy. And nationalism, a radical nationalism, was the answer to it because it provided an easy emotional answer to the problems that were facing people. Uh, it was, uh, in Germany, it was a national socialism, but it was still both, a, it was a fusion of nationalism and socialism, or Bolshevism, if you will, in one kind of totalitarian political movement. And, uh, it, and it came out of the ashes of the collapse of the Weimar Republic and the collapse of the German society. And so I'm mindful of that, and I'm also mindful that uh, we Americans have been through very difficult times, the Depression, Civil War, and the like. But it was always our creed, the better nature that Lincoln talked about that saved us. So we didn't go into those dark places like the Germans had to go. And that's what I don't like to see about nationalism. If I could just add something. One of the great things, one of the things that makes America exceptional, we've talked about a number of them, is the decentralized nature of our country. Um, we have more than just the federal government that we rely on to help us solve these problems, yet nationalism seems to go straight to that, to that level. So I'd say two things in addition to that. One, we need to understand what the specific problem is and then back out from that what caused that. Too often we look, you, you, you sort of listed a, a, a bevy of problems there. And we hear that a lot and we say all of these things are happening, therefore the free market's not working or liberalism in the Adam Smith sense isn't working. Um, and therefore, we need to move to something else. What we need to do is understand what's causing the opioid crisis. What's causing these different things? And then you can look at all these different levels of society. I, I prefer uh, private solutions. And then if there's no private solution, let's figure out is there a local solution or a state solution. And through that process, we usually can solve most of these things. But I, I just really believe that um, giving Americans fewer resources to solve these problems is not going to get us there. And empowering bureaucrats and politicians aren't going to get us there. So I think that we need to do the hard work of understanding what the issue is and then backing out from that, what's the best approach to dealing with it. I happen to believe that uh, the, the main reason why, if you had to come a big concept about why you have these social problems, is because of the disintegration of civil society, which has been caused by direct government intervention in civil society to where they have replaced government action with the freedom of our institutions and the freedom of our people operating on their own inside civil society. If that's the analysis of what's caused it, then the answer is not more state doing more of what they were doing before. Right there. <laughs> Hi, uh, so I'm a student at Claremont McKenna College, and is this working? 
and I have a question about uh, patriotism. So you talked a ton about nationalism without even considering what patriotism is today and having this, um, I think there's a difference between nationalism and thinking that one identity or one uh, country or identity is uh, better than another or stronger than another versus patriotism, which is having pride in one's country and those ideals. And I think America really stands for for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and the um, trying to go after that. So I just wanted to ask what you think the role of patriotism is um, and going forward with all of the rhetoric that President Trump does um, or says versus well, it's no, it's no accident that we use the word patriotism. It comes from being a patriot in the revolution. That's where it comes from. And so it's a civic thing that was grounded in the nature of the American Revolution, which was all about forming not only a more perfect union, as Lincoln would call it later, but a different kind of government, or actually a government that was preserving our rights. And so it was from the get-go based in a, in a concept of civic rights and civic patriotism. It wasn't, it was quite consciously not nationalistic in that sense of the word. So um, it is, it's grounded in the creed. It's grounded in what makes us different from other people. Um, I, you, you remember when Barack Obama made that famous quip about American exceptionalism? He says, well, I'm sure the Greeks think they're exceptional too, you know, and he was responding to the, the mis misunderstanding that, when, that American exceptionalism is about, about us sort of bragging about how much better we are than, uh, than other countries. Uh, uh, as I said in my remarks, probably most Americans kind of feel that's probably true, but that really is not what that uh, American exceptionalism is. It's actually a, dis a description historically of what makes us different than other countries in the world. And it turns out that what made us different also is what made us great. It's what made us successful as a, as a nation. And uh, it's capturing these nuances and these, in some cases, these even ambiguities, which we conservatives have done a pretty good job of over the last 30 or 40 years until this issue of nationalism came along and blew it up. And now we have to go back in and start trying to make sure that uh, we don't go off uh, in a different direction and lose the wonderful balance that I thought we conservatives have had in defining what it meant to be an American. What, uh, we've got, uh, yeah, we've got time. Oh, maybe in the back there? Hi, thank you very much. Uh, Ying Ma, I've got um, a couple of questions. One is, um, you guys uh, um, mentioned the sort of the lack of faith that a number of nationalists have in uh, capitalism. And I do wonder if maybe... Um, there's more of a correlation than a causation. And so there may be nationalists who are advocating all kinds of big government solutions, particularly where it comes to trade or, or you know, other economic policies. But are they doing that because they're nationalists or they just happen to be nationalists and they're advocating big government solutions that, ha and that sometimes also sound a bit anti-capitalistic? So I'd love your thoughts on that. Um, my... My second question um, has to do with sovereignty um, 
And Kim mentioned in, in his remarks that, you know, conservatives have um, historically been, been skeptical of the nation state um, um, and, and that it's, it's not usually something that conservatives don't worship. But I think there is also a very strong tradition, at least recent tradition of conservatives defending sovereignty and that we're not interested in the kind of pulled sovereignty that the Europeans are interested in. Um, and, and so to the extent that whether it's pro-Trump folks or others um, who talk about sovereignty, especially in the context of America first, I just wonder whether there might be all kinds of perfectly legitimate, perfectly valid things to say about sovereignty and in defense of sovereignty and defending what many people view as independence that, you know, that might be lost in this conversation about nationalism, that we end up sort of throwing all that together with, you know, the less, um, less appealing aspects of nationalism. Well, I took, uh, in my remarks, I took, I thought, uh, great pains to make that distinction in the sense that the reason why American conservatives believe in sovereignty is because of the, of the nature of our democratic government. It's not because we have a nation state per se. Sudan has a nation state. North Korea has one. China's got one. Russia's got one. The international legal system treats us all the same. Fine. I got that. We will use that and we will protect that. But what really gives us the legitimacy? For me, when I was Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations for George W. Bush, and I would go into a UN setting, and I'd be sitting around a table and I would have Sudan and other countries there. And if I happened to say something about sovereignty, you know what they would do? They'd raise their hand. Yeah, me too. Yeah, he's right. He's right. We believe in sovereignty. Now, keep out of my, out of my uh, bailiwick. Don't tell me I can, can't abuse my people. It's a fundamental different reason for defending sovereignty. It's because of the popular sovereignty of our people and the nature of our government and the fact that we don't use sovereignty to hide behind to abuse our people but to protect the rights of our people. That's really an important distinction to make. Otherwise, it all this gets blurred together in a bunch of isms and a bunch of bunch of uh, blabber about nation states. And, uh, and they are not the same things. Uh, and it's, uh, it's and keeping it straight is the only way I can keep the morality of it straight. Yeah, can I yeah. Offer, uh, offer an exemplar of that? I think, and then Jack, maybe Jack wants to jump in on the economic nationalism issue. But I think this is a, well, your question is a great example of, of, of the, what I was talking about in terms of parsing, separating the conversations. So we respect the sovereignty of states because that is a global system of, of managing relations between communities, which, which works well for us. On the other hand, we believe that popular sovereignty is really fundamentally the only consistent management of the human community that's consistent with natural rights and human law. So a great exemplar of that, of an issue that, that unpacks that, is R2P, this right to protect. Right. So this was a doctrine that was advocated that said, if a state cannot protect its people, then it's incumbent on the international community to impose their will upon that state. Now, we freak out and say, whoa, we don't like that idea at all. And you can parse that into both conversations. We don't like the idea of R2P, right to protect, from, from, from a, a, a system of state governance, because essentially, 
people will just create rationales to impose their will on other states, and that will actually create chaos, right? Russia will come up with awesome reasons why they have the right to protect um, ethnic Russians in every country in Western Europe. So it's it, it would add arnica to the system, which we support. So we oppose it for that reason. But we also oppose it because R2P could then be used as an instrument to impose upon the popular sovereignty of individual citizens. So if a, if a nation, if the United States has chosen that we chose to be governed this way and do this, would some other we would some other state could then take that argument? So well, that we don't think that is, we have to protect the American citizens against that. So for example, you could see an argument that a national community says all these Americans have guns. That's that we should take that away. That's dangerous, right? And and essentially using R two P as an instrument to undermine the popular sovereignty of our citizens. Therefore, we oppose it on both grounds. But I think the point is 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 parsing those two conversations into their logical boxes really gets us beyond bumper sticker deep. The fact is is that absolute there, there's absolute state sovereignty in the international system of the way we practice it doesn't exist. The dispute. And the international community is over what gives somebody the right to intervene against the sovereignty. And there's wide inside the UN system and elsewhere that we're fighting about that all the time. And we have to be engaged in that fight. And when we doubt allowed and when we don't, uh, we, uh, we support a human rights uh, resolution at the UN or somewhere else that criticizes the way the mullahs are, are uh, protecting their, uh, are abusing their people. Secretary Pompeo talks about this all the time inside Iran. Well, what gives us the right? Really? To, to, if you have absolute sovereignty, what right do we Americans have to criticize the Iranians? Well, I don't believe in that kind of absolute sovereignty. If it so happens that there's a huge difference between us criticizing the human rights abuses of the Iranians and uh, the Commission on the Status of Women or some other UN body coming in and trying to go into one of our states and say that we're not supporting some uh, social policy that the UN wants, and therefore we're, you know, we're using sovereignty to hide uh, abuses behind that. That's what you fight about at the UN all the time. But you have to keep it. You have to keep it straight in your head that that's not really a fight about sovereignty per se. It's actually a, a fight and debate about the content of the policy. Who is worth debate with? Right. So I mean, I don't think that the Trump I don't think that the Trump administration is arguing that there's absolute sovereignty for countries like Sudan or, or you know, that I, somehow my we're debate's not, not with the Trump administration um, or, or these people who have come up with a, a concept of. No, I'm, extrapo I'm extrapolating from the concepts of, of uh, as you talked about, national sovereignty. I'm making some distinctions that we have to keep straight in our minds. Otherwise, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm not debating the Trump administration. They actually do a fairly good job at the U.N. I mean, I suppose what I'm saying is that I go back to your remar the remarks you made in your speech about the nation state. And so who exactly are these people who are saying that, you know, that somehow conservatives now ought to. I, I suppose may maybe that my what what I'm trying to do is just figure out a better linkage from, you know, from you guys about how you're linking sovereignty with the nation state and who are these people doing the linking? Well, I go, go back to that conference that occurred, what was it, uh, two months or so ago for national conservatism? Go back and look at some of the things that were said there. That's where this got started. Jack, you want to get in the economic nationalism? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to claim, because I, I don't know what, 
economic nationalists are thinking. You ask, what are they thinking? I don't know what they're thinking. Um, but here's what I do know, that when you look at the United States, we've been most successful um, when individuals and families in the private sector are free to address problems, regardless of the problem, um, not re within society. It's, we get into trouble when we start empowering government and bureaucrats to solve those problems for us. We end up growing government, crowding out the private sector, um, having one-size-fits-all, creating um, special interests, and it, the, the, inev the inevitable result is um, the expansion of that problem, um, and it just never gets solved. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's what I would say, that, that what we see is that from an economics perspective, the more freedom we have, the more economic freedom we have, the more prosperity we have, the more resources we then have to solve whatever problems are, are out there. We, we do know that people like Pat Deneen and people I like, like I like J.D. Vance, but they, they criticize consumerism, consumption. And, and so I get, I get, it gets my hackles up a little bit because if you read some of the Marxist professors who were coming in here in the 50s and the 40s, Horkheimer, Adorno, uh, Herbert Marcuse, they were saying the same things. They were, they were finding Americans happy, happy consumerists, and they despaired of that. So I, I understand the argument they're trying to make. They're saying that if we pursue consumption and consumerism, that means that ergo jobs have to go to China. But that is a, a mistake that they make. You know, they, a, a lot of the, a lot of the criticism of capitalism that we see today really mirrors Marxist criticism from decades ago. And again, these are people whom I like in other areas. We have time for one more question. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, a Japan native, U.S. citizen. Uh, I, I like what I was listening to Kim, and I like what I heard. Uh, it's, that's the reason very reason I became a U.S. citizen by forsaking Japanese citizenship is I think he was talking about uh, with the people, uh, bottom up, that type of thing. That's not monarchy. This is this is none like like none other. Uh, my, however, the first thing that came to my mind was that uh, what's the difference between nationalism and Americanism? Maybe that's what he was talking about. I, I don't know. So. What was the second one? Americanism. Oh, American. Oh. Well, it was uh, <laughs> the difference between American exceptionalism and nationalism, as I talked about. They're not the same thing. I see them really historically on opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, nationalism is about uh, about celebrating the, the cultural differences of a nation usually based upon ethnicity, language, uh, culture, exclusivity. Uh, it's about if you're a Serb or a Croat, you have a long history, you hate each other, you've got wars that happened 500 years ago and you have celebrations. And, and uh, if you're a Shiite or a Sunni, it goes back to over a thousand years. I mean, to, there, there is, there, that, that's the sort of the, the downside, if you will, of, not, of having a national identity that is devoid of political content that is good. And so our national identity has the creed, and it's good. It's a, it's a good history. And that's what makes us exceptional and makes us different. We just don't want to forget that. And so we are not a nation like any other nation. 
And if we ever get to the point where we think that we are, then we lose something that's very special about who we are. Can I, can I, I just one thought? Because no uh, conversation is complete without trashing Thomas Hobbes. Um, no, <laughs> seriously. Thomas Hobbes. No, no, no. Here's, here's the problem. Hobbes was fundamentally wrong. B- brutal and right? short. Um, Nasty. And, Nasty. <laughs> and why the American experiment is so important and why initiatives like Pompeo's discussion about inalienable rights is so important. But, you know, Hobbes' notion essentially is that human cravings were, were, had no limit, right? That we would be without bound, if we are not bounded or controlled, that we will, you know, consciously, you know, consume everything, right? And Hobbes is wrong. Humans are perfectly capable of controlling their appetites. And, and inalienable rights would, is what gives them the power and the tools to do that. We, we are not insatiable animals that will eat until everybody starves. We have lots of evidence to prove that. And there's no bigger evidence of that than the creation of the American society. I mean, this is what de Tocqueville talked about in his journey to America. The notion that this great experiment that, well, what do we do if we let, actually let the people govern themselves? You know, we're all going to die. And the answer is no, we didn't all die. Because we, because Hobbes was wrong. We don't have insatiable, Elizabeth Warren is wrong. We're not, we are not brutal consumerists. We love our families. We love our children. We love our community. And we love ourselves. And we endeavor every day of our lives to make decision in the best interests of those people. And if you will allow me to express my inalienable rights, I will do the best that human society can possibly do to make a future happen. I think that's a beautiful dream. And it's not a dream that gets answered in a bumper sticker. But I think that's the fundamental truth why Kim wanted to hold this session and why why we think this, we get so passionate about this particular issue. This is more than just a bumper sticker. This is fundamentally about what kind of society is just for human beings. What did God intend for us? And I think that he didn't intend for us to to read Thomas Hobbes. (laughs) Thank you all for coming very much. Hobbes, I had in mind.